0: Last Saturday, I did something a little dangerous, a little reckless. I knew it wasn't going to turn out well, but I did it anyway. I decided to drive my SUV to the Village Shopping Center here in town on a Saturday. I mean, I know. I mean, how could I be so stupid? Have you ever tried to park there on a Saturday? I mean, it's an absolute madhouse. It's an accident waiting to happen. The parking lanes are just too narrow, and there's just not enough space between rows. I don't know how they got away with that design, but if you drive anything larger than a Prius, it is like sardines in a can, especially if you get next to one of those monster trucks that some folks drive. Trying to back out of your parking space, I mean, I just break out into a cold sweat. I mean, I just can't see. I have all these blind spots, even with cameras and warning signals, I just can't see who's coming. And the pedestrians are just clueless. They walk right behind your rear bumper oblivious while talking on their cell phones. I'm surprised there aren't more people just kind of mowed down in that parking lot. Pretty soon every car is going to need to have its own video drone that launches from the roof of the car so you can get a bird's eye view of what's going on around you. Because no matter how much I twist and and turn, I just have all these blind spots. Well, cars aren't the only things with blind spots. People have them too. Uh, We can be blind to our own faults, even though they're easily seen by others. Blind to our own shortcomings, and that's typical of all of us. But we also share another kind of blindness, and that's spiritual blindness. Something more serious than just not recognizing our own rough edges. We all have spiritual blind spots that can affect our relationship with God and who he wants us to be as his disciples. And to help us understand a bit about spiritual blindness, we're going to hear a story from the Gospel of Mark, Where Jesus deals with the situation that on the surface is about physical blindness. But as we'll see, it actually goes much deeper than that. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 46. Let's hear God's word. Then as they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And so they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing aside a cloak, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed along the road. You know, people today often have some confused ideas about God. For example, there are a lot of folks who believe that if something bad happens to you, it must be because God doesn't like you, God's punishing you. You've done something wrong and God's getting even. You're you're being punished because of some hidden sin in your life or maybe in your family is just cursed because of something that happened in the past. And that's really a universal idea. You'll find that in all the folk religions on every continent. And that idea was part of the folk religion of Jesus' day, that God was all about punishment, to be blind, to be born with any kind of disability. During Jesus' time, it was believed to be a punishment from God. Someone in your family committed a grievous sin against God, did something bad, and so the illness or disability was a punishment from God. The punishment for some previous sin was being passed down from generation to generation. To be born blind, that meant that you were born outside of God's grace, born excluded from God's love, automatically an outcast. That applied to other kinds of illnesses as well, as we saw last week with the woman who had the bleeding issues. Lepers, other kinds of diseases, same thing. And this is true for Bartimaeus, blind since birth. So he never had a chance. I mean, he was doomed by the social and religious structure of his day to always be on the outside looking in. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Always outside the circle. Always in the back row. Not even a second class citizen. Like the Dalit or untouchable caste in Hindu culture, the lowest of all the castes. In Hinduism, they're not even considered to be fully human. They deserve to suffer in this life. For the sins of the past. Blind Bartimaeus was treated that way. A reject. No value. No dignity. No worth. He would never be invited to the table. And certainly never invited into the kingdom of God. But along comes Jesus. The story takes place in Jericho. Jericho was a city on the main road. About halfway between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. At the time of this story. It would have been bustling with the noise of pilgrims. On their way to Jerusalem. For the Passover celebration. Probably a beautiful spring day, palm trees blowing in the breeze, the salty smell of the Dead Sea filling the nose. It was a good day to be alive, unless you were one of the countless beggars that lined the road that led out of the city. Every day was the same for them, a daily struggle to survive. If you're lucky, you might garner a few coins from the travelers en route to the grand feast in Jerusalem. If they were feeling generous, more than likely you'd be overlooked, you're just a nuisance, and... Stuck on the side of the road as the rest of the world passed by. Reduced to kind of a few crumbs and a shoddy blanket as your only earthly possession. And so while others excitedly rushed on to Jerusalem for the great Passover celebration, Bartimaeus just sat. His world extended only as far as his hand could reach and his ears could hear. If he had any hopes or dreams or aspirations beyond that, he kept them deep inside, kept them to himself. Because quite frankly nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. But there was something different about this day. The town was abuzz because yesterday this new prophet from Nazareth, this guy named Jesus, he was on his way to the Passover feast and he invited himself to a dinner party at the home of the local taxman Zacchaeus with all his cronies. Zacchaeus was well known as a bad guy who extorted money from everybody. Well there was this raucous party And after being with Jesus, Zacchaeus starts giving his money away. He starts paying back everyone he ever cheated with interest. That never happens. That kind of change of heart, that never happens. It does when Jesus comes to town. And now Jesus and his followers are marching on to Jerusalem. And some people think Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of God. He's going to throw out the Roman oppressors. And so the crowds are starting to gather. They're starting to think of this as a victory parade. The news spreads out to the beggars at the city gates. Did you hear? Did you hear? Jesus is coming. The atmosphere is charged with excitement. It's good news for the beggars. Maybe Jesus will encourage others to be like Zacchaeus and maybe open their wallets, be a little bit more generous, spread a little gold and silver around to the less fortunate. So Bartimaeus kind of ponders this news. Jesus, where did I hear that name before? Probably he's heard it in the excited conversations of travelers who went on this road. This is a man who people say can heal the sick and make the the, the lame to walk and and the blind to to see. That sparked a fire in Bartimaeus' heart. A spark flashes across his soul. To see, to be able to get up from the dusty roadside, to walk into life like other men. To see the faces of friends and family for the first time. To know the myriad of colors and shapes, to see a sunset, a wildflower. To see, could it really be? Is there something special about this Jesus? You know, faith always begins with that kind of question. So the parade reaches the gate. The crowd's noisily pushing forward. Bartimaeus is trying to get through the crush of people, but it's a lost cause. Once again, he's on the outside looking in, that place where he's been his whole life. He's in the nosebleed section, and in frustration, in desperation, he just starts shouting at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me. And some people turn and they see this filthy blind beggar, his hands cupped over his mouth. And they hear him yelling. they say, shut up, old man. We're trying to hear if Jesus has something to say. Jesus has no time for a worthless piece of human debris like you. But Bartimaeus can't be silenced. He just starts shouting louder. This is his one chance. He's going to give it all he's got. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. Somehow, over the tumult, he's heard Bartimaeus' cry, not because it was the loudest voice, but because Jesus' ears are tuned into that frequency, a sincere and honest plea. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Over all the other noise generated by the world, Jesus hears the honest cry for mercy. And what happens next is really one of the most powerful events in Scripture because Jesus stops. Jesus stops and has Bartimaeus brought it front and center. And why is this such a big deal? Well, this is a powerful moment. You've probably heard me say this a hundred times, that the text without the context becomes a pretext. The context is what before and what follows after a certain section of Scripture, the historical setting, what was the meaning for the original hearers. I mean, you can twist the Bible to say anything you want to if you just lift it out of the context uh, of what became before and what comes after. Politicians do this all the time. Uh, Christians do it. Pa- pastors do it all the time. To really appreciate the power of a story about Bartimaeus, we have to read about what's already happened in Mark chapter 10. Back in verse 32, Jesus and his disciples are starting this journey towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows what's waiting for him. He knows the cross is coming, and so he gives them a heads up about what is going to happen. We read back in verse 33. He says, We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. And Jesus, Jesus see, he is very transparent here, very clear about what lies ahead. And the disciples just always seem so clueless about his mission. They don't really understand, and so he goes on in verse 35. Um, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him. Teacher, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let us sit at your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. This is actually the third time Jesus has given his disciples this insight into the future. Each time he has informed them with really increasing detail what the cross will involve. And each time he's always included this promise of resurrection, which they never seem to hear. The request from James and John shows that they still thought Jesus was going to take Jerusalem by force, that he was going to set up his kingdom as an earthly kingdom. And they wanted in on the deal. They pushed their resume to the top of the pile. They wanted proximity in relationship to Jesus. And it was simply a power grab on their part. And so when the other disciples see it and hear about it, I mean, all hell breaks loose because James and John are sort of jumping the line and pushing the other disciples aside. So out comes all the jealousy and the bruised egos. And Jesus just, I think he must have just been shaking his head. What a bunch of lug nuts. And this is what's amazing is that Jesus doesn't rebuke James and John for their brazen request. He simply says, basically, you have no idea what you're asking for. And then he gives them a lesson about true godly leadership, starting in verse 42. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So on the heels of this tense exchange about power and who's on first comes blind Bartimaeus. And as I said last week, Mark, as a gospel writer, he likes to set up these contrasts. Last week it was the contrast between the well-connected synagogue leader, Jairus, and the unnamed woman with the medical issues. This week it's a contrast between the disciples and Bartimaeus. Mark introduces the blind man by giving the reader his name, Bartimaeus. And then he adds a side note. His name means son of Timaeus. And all his readers would have known that's what the name Bar-Timaeus means, son of Timaeus. It's like if you're Swedish and Larsen means son of Lars. They all knew that. So it was redundant for Mark to say Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. But you see, Mark is underscoring something about his name which isn't transparent to us reading this in English. The word Timaeus means honor. The blind beggar's name was son of honor. But so far his life had not lived up to that name. And what James and John had asked for was honor. The honor of sitting at the hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They asked for the highest honor possible. And what did Jesus ask Bartimaeus? He said, what do you want me to do for you? That is word for word the same question he asked James and John in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? Do you see where this is going? The blind man was conscious of his blindness and came to Jesus for mercy. James and John and the other disciples were, were not conscious of their spiritual blindness. And they came to Jesus with their own agenda. They were spiritually blind. Blind in at least all of these three ways. Up, in, and out. Up, in, and out. First of all, up. They were blind to who Jesus is. They still thought of him as a miracle worker who could kick the Roman army <clears throat> excuse me, out of Israel. They didn't really understand the cosmic dimension of his purpose. To give his life as the atoning sacrifice... For the sins of the world. They still did not understand that Jesus was God in the flesh. Fully human. Fully divine. The visible expression of the invisible God. Who would be resurrected and exalted as Lord of all. They didn't understand as the Apostle Paul will write eventually in Colossians 1.18. That in everything Jesus has supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Their view of Jesus was too small. Like so many people today, their view of Jesus was too small. So up in their vertical relationship with God, they were still spiritually blind. And then into themselves, to self, they still didn't see themselves in the way of Jesus. They sort of had one foot in the door of what it meant to follow Jesus, but in some ways they still thought of it as like joining a club that entitled you to this one-way ticket to heaven. Check the boxes, you know, be a good person, be nice to people, don't kick the, ball, the, the dog, and you're in. And they didn't see that faith in Christ was a heart response. A heart response to his grace and love that would be displayed on the cross. They didn't understand the life transformation that Christ wanted to bring. It's sort of like way back in my childhood, there was only black and white TV. I know, the Stone Age, right? only black and white TV. And someone comes along and says, hey, there's so much more than that. There's color. You can see it in color. And your first response would be, no way. There's no such thing. There's only shades of light gray and dark gray. You can't believe beyond your own level of experience. And that's true for most people. We can't believe beyond our own level of current experience. And that's what it's like when the Bible tells us that we can experience a whole new level of life through forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt and healing from hurt and new purpose for living and wholeness in Christ. Often people can't believe beyond their own current experience, and so they just go on living in a black and white and gray TV world when HD color is right there waiting. Like the disciples, we can be blind to what Jesus wants to do in us. And third, the disciples were blind to others. Too often people of faith lose track of their purpose in Christ. They're blind to their calling to live for Christ out in the wider world. Kind of content to sit on the sidelines and never use their gifts and talents to serve Christ. Got a trunk load of excuses as to why not. Timing's not right, I don't know enough, when things settle down, etc. Make great Monday morning quarterbacks, have plenty of advice for others on how to do it, but they won't get into the game. Have marvelous hindsight, can point out all the flaws, but will never suit up and get in the game, and actually serve in Jesus' name will never make that investment of time that it takes to learn their faith, to learn how to pray, to learn how to understand and apply the Bible. Will they ever use their gifts to serve others and share their faith? Will never open their eyes to see the vast need of others who are out there waiting for someone to lead them to Christ? Too often folks are spiritually blind, up to God, into self, and out to others. So hours away from this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, on what we now call Palm Sunday. Days away from the upper room and the Last Supper, a week away from the shameful and painful death on a cross, Jesus stops. In the midst of a hurricane of human voices, one voice arrests him. Above all the cheering, he hears one solitary man crying and the parade comes to a screeching halt. Call him. Think about this for a moment with me. Jesus stopped. Facing what would be the most traumatic days of his life, days in which the fate of all humanity hangs in the balance, Jesus is willing to let destiny stand still so he can attend to the needs of this one man. It's the moment of truth for Bartimaeus. He leaps to his feet, runs to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. Same questions he asked James and John. They asked for glory. Bartimaeus asked for grace. Rabbi, I want to see. What a model of faith, willing to step from the world that he's known all his life, willing willing to cast it aside, reach out, be bold, willing to put his trust in the words of one who claims to be the Son of God. Yet, in this kind of faith, it's what breaks the hold of darkness and helps him grab onto the light. Rabbi, I want to see. Scarcely do the words come out of his mouth when unbearable light pours into his darkened eyes. Bartimaeus squints and opens his eyes to a world awash in color. He sees the first smiling face of the one who brought a dead dream to life. Go, your faith has healed you. Go. No, Lord, I'm going to stay. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And with that, Bartimaeus leaves the side of the road for good, begins a new journey of life with Christ as his guide. This is the story of Bartimaeus, but it should be the story of all of us. We all are the beggar on the side of the road. We're all blind, up to God, into self, out to others. Each one of us, you know, we have to see ourselves stalled along the road of life, reduced to being beggars on the outside of the circle, but the good news is that Jesus has his ears open to our cries for mercy. He's always willing to stop for those who seek his grace. Are you ready to reach out to him, to answer him when he says, what do you want me to do for you? And to remember to ask for grace and not for glory. Because it is in the answer that the miracle of faith begins. The Son of God is willing to stop. He's willing to hear you when you pray. He knows your questions already. He hears your cry for mercy. And he is willing to put the rest on the universe on hold for you. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for just such a powerful story. Because... When we begin to forget that we are the blind beggar on the side of the road, that's when pride takes over. That's when we start to get, get into trouble. Help us to always recognize our spiritual need for you. That we're never beyond needing your grace. We need it every single day, Lord. And so we cry to you every single day. And I just pray, Lord, that if there's someone here who's never taken that initial step of just crying out to you in their loneliness, their darkness, their sin their sense of abandonment, Lord, that they would cry out to you and they would find that you are the one who hears their voice and welcomes them and restores them and brings healing into their hearts. Lord, would you do that today? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.